Greetings, dear listeners. It's a freewheeling episode this week, with just me and Shadi. I literally just got off the plane for this one, no plan for where it would go. As usual, I'm always surprised at the interesting places we went with it. Check us out on YouTube as well. We recorded this one on video. On to the show. I'm old, and I'm nearing deafness, so Mm. when there is, you know what's happening? It's like I have you too loud in my headphones, and it's just, you're yelling into my ear so I can hear you, and it bleeds out of the earphones, gets picked up in the mic, and that's the echo. Oh. That's literally what's happening. You think that's really the reason? I mean, I can hear you, I can hear you just fine. I just like when, uh like listening to talk and whatever I, I like it louder i'm not actually going down but, <laughs> but that's what's happening so I think how you was have the flight a, back um what? i i was gonna say i think you just have like a very um penetrating voice that like cuts through everything like really you no one's ever complimented you on your voice no but not in those yeah that I have a, maybe a good radio voice or something radio like that. Radio voice, yeah, that's it. I mean, I didn't mean penetrating. I didn't mean penetrating in like a shrill way or something like that. No, it's a very good voice. It just like it it bleeds out of microphones very out of uh, headphones very easily and gets picked up by mics very easily. Whatever that frequency is, it just like comes out of this and goes into here. That's every time there's a oh, so a it's mic the frequency uh, of my voice. That and I have my headphones up too loud. Clearly, it's one of the it's well, both. Really. I, no one's ever told me that I have a special frequency when I speak. <laughs> When, when she says cool. that to you, Shadi, you know she's the one. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, flight was okay. Flight was okay. Uh, honestly, uh, the least eventful part of all of this was, uh, was the flight back. It was, it was as if there wasn't trouble in the world and as if airports were functioning just fine. Uh, no problems at all. Even, cool. even had the two seats next to me free on the way back. Which wow, that's nice. amazing. That's a treat. It is a, a treat. treat. So yeah, we haven't so talked. What are we in a while. talking about? Yeah, I don't know, man. You tell me. I'm I'm on. Not it like has been a long midnight time. thirty over there. It has been a long time, and uh, I don't know. Shoot, you know, I I was thinking on my on the flight over here, <laughs> um, how you know I I alluded to it in in the essay uh, defending democracy from you and fascism or semi-fascism, um, how distance just makes things seems so silly um and honestly i it's being closer to what in my world is sort of like the key geopolitical story like ukraine and all of that and and then doing balkans work for the last two weeks i i I really don't know what's been going on in the states like what apart from you getting pilloried for and biden giving some speech about semi-fascism i don't know has, has anything really happened I mean, me being pilloried is probably the main story. Yeah. No, I feel like that's... Oh, the queen died. But I was closer to that than here. Oh, yeah, yeah. You right. know. True, true. Well, to be fair, I'm not following the news very closely either. Um, but I think, yeah, the queen was a big deal. Let me think what happened right before the queen. 
Yeah, I don't pilloried. know. Maybe I think you got pilloried. I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> you got pilloried, and then the queen died. Oh man. Yeah, yeah. So I'm trying to think about what I have opinions on at this point. I think that what I'm most worked up about is my dislike of dogs. Like I really got riled up earlier because of the thread that our dear friend Sam Kimbriel shared as if, as if to egg me on. Yeah. And it did. It's an incredible thread. It, I mean, Sam didn't write it. He just found it on like on the Twitter. It's from some guy I don't know, but it's like 22 tweets or something. And it's just like this incredible broadside against dogs and the idea of dogs and the implications of dogs. And it filled me with joy, but it also riled me up because it's it was a sense that finally someone has spoken the truth that needs to be told. Are you? Are you without I, apology? I, I, I didn't read the thread. Are you? Are you? Is it that you really? I mean, clearly you dislike dogs, but you dislike the fact that they're totemically revered in our society. That's what bugs you most, right? Yeah, it's not, yeah. It, it's not just the dogs themselves; it's what they represent right. in our and society. The decadence. decadence, decadence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And also things that I'm concerned about and I have been increasingly concerned about in recent years, which is, I don't want to sound like a traditionalist or a conservative, but, but. <laughs> the fam, I mean, I think that the family is an important thing in our society. And uh, it really resonated the thread where he talks about this somewhat new thing. I don't remember it being super common like five years ago when people self-identify as dog moms and dog dads and things like that, I think it's absurd. Yeah. But I think it also speaks to a sickness in our society. The fact that, yeah, this, and the idea that, you know, many people are replacing children with dogs. But it's not and the dog's fault, right? I mean, it's <laughs> the fact there's something else that's happening here. Yeah, yeah. Well, the dog, oh, I, is, the dog didn't cause that. No, no, you're right. No, right. So go easy on the dogs. I mean, you know, you are just a crusty. Yeah, it's a good point. This. It's. I guess what I'm really angry about is people. People. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, in my neighborhood in D.C., I see these dogs everywhere. I'm like, does everyone have a dog? And especially women. At least yeah. some. You know, guys don't necessarily have dogs all the time. But why why does every single woman have a dog now? To like, protect what is herself. that even about? DC's becoming dangerous <laughs> to protect herself when people break yeah, in. Yeah, that's that's one that's an interesting thought. I wonder if they're big dogs. I mean, if they're like cute dogs, then that's clearly not it. Yeah, but I suspect that a lot of these women are you know, well-intentioned, bleeding heart liberal types, so I mm. doubt that they would cite crime as the primary reason for getting a dog. It would be an interesting survey, though. Yeah, I mean, they wouldn't um, cite it; they'd lie about it. But like, <laughs> if they're worried, anyway. Yeah. No, I, look, I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I just don't have really an opinion on this. It's just like people having dogs, or or people not finding meaning in their lives and and attaching it to something else. I mean, if it wasn't dogs, it'd be something else. You know, the the the, the odd thing is. Haven't several of our female friends complained about men on dating apps, like constantly with dogs and the outdoors and like yeah, oh my god, hiking, hiking. Oh my no, but god, dogs yeah. also. But with dogs, I think it's, so that's the other thing. Yeah. 
And it's 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 weird because I think the, the, the consensus is that it's not attractive, yet I think maybe I'm really speculating here, but it might be that men like you see women with dogs and then to connect with women with dogs, they get dogs themselves and then are yeah. mirroring are mirroring the whole thing because men don't love dogs, except they do. I mean, actually. <laughs> so I don't know. Yeah. And look. Uh, outdoor, I mean, this is a huge problem on dating apps where people go on and on about outdoor activities, hiking. Who know, Who are all these people who love hiking all the time? Like, I just, uh, this is probably just me being a misanthrope. But um, or, or not an outdoors uh, person. I mean, maybe you're missing <laughs> out on the match of your life if you... Put, like took up some hiking or something like that. Maybe you're look, I'll hike yourself. for love. If that's really what it comes down to, I'll go on a hike. If that's yeah. what it takes, and you'd get a dog if that's what it takes. Well, I would probably w- want to have some conversation about that and see if there's a middle ground compromise that we can. No, come no, no. To. no. I'm, I'm just saying it's about wooing, not about not about like you find someone and then she insists on a dog. I'm oh, saying, oh, so I, w- I would dog. get a dog just to woo. Just women walking around with dogs. Correct. You wouldn't consider that. It seems that. like a lot of work. It also seems somewhat insincere and yeah. inauthentic. But Isn't I guess people do that is? sort of thing. Isn't that what dating is? Is insincerity <laughs> and inauthenticity of trying to... I remember, I think, I might have even mentioned this on an, on an episode once. Uh, it was a Dan Savage column from a really long time ago that I, I really liked. I mean, he, he he wasn't just talking about dating. He was talking about dating and like a relationship. And what a relationship actually is, is is subtly lying about yourself to another person and in doing so, trying to live up to their expectations for what they think you are and should be. And that in that way, this mutual lying to each other is a means of, of, of uh, um, you know, self-improvement, basically. Because you think that- Oh, that's that, interesting. That, that she thinks that you need to be this, and therefore you lie about not living up to that, and in trying to live up to that, you improve yourself. Does that make sense? Okay, that is intriguing. It doesn't yeah. sound like this a strong foundation for a long-term marriage, because at some point, I mean, nah. you can't know, always be lying. the person that you want to be. You're both lying to each other. The whole process is just one of... Uh, of uh, lying, lying, but subtly, I, not I used, not to the point in I a sustainable thought, way. I thought that honesty is the foundation of a healthy relationship, but what do I know? Right. <laughs> <laughs> but on a, on a more serious note, because I I do want to share with listeners, um, you know, a special excerpt from this tweet thread. It's kind of funny, but also serious. But I'll just mm. here's here's two examples. It's a good point. I hadn't thought about it quite like this, but he says, we also live in a society where it is far more accepted to say, I hate children than to say, I hate dogs. We've been conditioned into seeing dogs as moral agents comparable to humans. I, so there's a, there's a deeper philosophical issue here. It's, do we see dogs as moral agents? I just think that's, you know, worth thinking about. Next tweet. But hold on. Like, Doggo- before you go on to, I mean, if, if, if it changes subjects, so let, let's just stick to the moral agents thing. I, I really dislike the idea um, when people, I mean, this is a, you know, vegetarians and vegans say this about, about eating animals. 
I forget now. I'm I'm too jet lagged to to conjure this up, but you know, I've never really liked the idea that animals have souls of any sort. And I they think don't. there is there is some sort of tradition of I don't know. I mean, what are they? Yeah, vegans they just, think that they have souls. But what are they if if they are, if they're something, right? Are they just Yeah, but I think to have a soul doesn't that require some kind of moral discernment and judgment? Like you have to be able to think and feel in a in a kind of um what's what's the way to put it they don't have a spiritual life and without a spiritual life how can you have a soul like it, those two things seem to me to be intertwined no i mean sure i i i happily eat animals it's not a it's not a problem there's a there's a there's a great graffiti graffito in a baltimore uh urinal that said if god didn't <laughs> want us to eat animals he wouldn't have made them out of meat Okay, that's incredible. I've never heard that before. Is that like a saying, or is that just only I just, found I remember it. in the I remember one it. bathroom stall in, in Baltimore? Baltimore. <laughs> wow, think, that's brilliant. I mean, that it is, is brilliant. Really it is just toilet, toilet, toilet wisdom. No, but I mean, I don't know. I, it, there is something to a dog. I don't know. Maybe even a cat. You can sort of tell that they semi-recognize you. I don't know if they have an internal life. Do dolphins? I don't know. Octopuses? They don't commit sins. Mm, I suppose. And, this, but, and that's also why dogs don't go to heaven or hell. So uh, there used to be some kind of show or movie you're saying all dogs go to heaven. It's actually yeah. not true. No <laughs> dogs go to heaven. But to be fair, no dogs go to hell either. But what's a sin, right? Like, I mean, if a dog shits on my rug, I can shame it. And then it seems to learn from it. And it seems to, like, actually feel a sense of shame. Um, so, I mean, that's a kind of moral lesson. That is that is taught to a god. I am the the I, to a dog. I am the dog's lord and master, and so I teach. I don't have a dog. But isn't but that a little I, bit more Pavlovian? Like it, it, the dog is simply responding to cues and incentives. There's are, no kind of yeah. moral judgment. They're not deciding what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. But, they are simply responding to the owner's incentive structure. What is what is God but an owner who sets up incentives, tells you what you can and can't do, and then you transgress against it or don't? It's interesting. Yeah, uh, that's but that's only part of it. We have we have a conscience. Maybe that's what I'm getting at. Dogs don't have conscience consciences. They can feel shame. Maybe I don't know, but they definitely don't feel guilt. And I think yeah. guilt is a distinctly human emotion or or sentiment. So putting aside the incentive structures that God puts in scripture or in law or whatever it might be, if something is not written in scripture, we can still feel good or bad about the things that are in between or the things that aren't covered. I mean, there's always new circumstances that aren't covered in scripture, yet we we feel something and we kind of... Um, we operate according to that that inner sense and we can go on that for a while. Um, you know, being a good friend, well, I guess that's, maybe that's in, that's in scripture, you're supposed to be good to people and nice to people, but it's not like a major focus of the three monotheistic faiths. How do we be, how can I be the best friend possible to Demir at this particular moment? Um, should Demir pick up his friend from the airport? I mean, that, that's not really something religion is speaking to, but there may be something inside of us where 
we think to ourselves, oh my God, do I really have to go all the way to the airport to pick up this friend? Why did this friend ask me to pick them up? Couldn't they just take an Uber? It's absurd. What a waste of time. But then we feel a certain guilt that this is a friend and they're, it, to, to make the trip going and coming back, it means something, even if it's not efficient, even if it's not bad to want them to take an Uber. Like it's not a sin to want your friend to just take an Uber, but we feel something because we want to be good. We want to be better. We want to communicate something to the people that we care about. So, I mean, I, mean, I it's wonder, a little that's bit a, of a diversion. But. No, 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 no. It's interesting. I mean, we're really going deep on this dog shit here, but like, <laughs> but it's interesting though, when you put it that way. So is, is the soul basically just a function of, I don't know, complexity? In a way, because everything yeah. you described is clearly just a you know a dog couldn't have all that. But if that's the case, right? Exactly. Complexity. How? Yeah. How does it work in Islam then? How does evolution work in Islam? Clearly, there's humanity just comes out of like in all the monotheistic faiths, humanity is sort of fully formed, um, and therefore man has well, soul. I mean, and was was isn't. early man the same as modern man in term? I mean, in, in a sort of physiological sense, I'm sure there were differences that if you look over millennia, you can see differences in bone structure. Is that an evolutionary sure. process? Yeah, sure. But, but I a, think that from an... Yeah. No, I mean, just like, where's the line on, on where the soul comes in? Given what we know now, I don't even know. These are these are these sorts of like college bull sessions. Well, I mean... Questions that I never investigated, but... I guess the origin st story is well Adam and Eve, so right. Adam certainly had, had a soul. So, like you know, because Adam committed sins, he felt guilt. He was sent down after you know the whole kind of apple and tree sort of you know that whole thing. So advanced hominids Remember? don't have souls, right? Like advanced apes. Who are advanced hominids? I don't know, like uh, things that weren't. Was that after Adam or before Adam? I, I don't know how, how Adam fits in with, with like Neanderthals and stuff like that. Um, it's actually a good question. I, I, it's not something I've really investigated closely. Like what is the Islamic position on Neanderthals and where would they would be in this sort of time continuum? I don't know. It's not something I think about a whole lot, but I, I do think, what was I going to say? Something really profound about our origin story, but I think I may have lost it. Um, but there's obviously, um, oh yeah, yeah. Oh, this is what I was thinking about. Our friend Osida Nuovenu of uh, the New Republic actually had a really interesting tweet about creationism. So hmm. what you said just made me think of this. I did respond to him in, uh, well, I mean, Osida's a, you know, he's a friend and we're part of the same reading group and all that. We are very much though on opposite sides on certain questions or debates, but he seems to be a little bit more feisty on Twitter. I guess a lot of people are more feisty on Twitter. And um, so I'm somewhat, su I'm surprised every now and then when he makes certain arguments on Twitter. Let me see what he said about creationism. But basically I think, oh yeah, here we go. Oh, this is a problem. Osita like deletes his Twitter account like completely mm. on a somewhat regular basis. So whenever I go back to see a tweet of his, it says this tweet is from an account that no longer exists. 
But couldn't you just like, that seems like a little bit, do you, people who completely delete their account, it just seems like a very decisive, serious, like that means you just disappear from Twitter. Anyway, yeah. the basic point that he made was on this, oh yeah, there was this debate on Twitter the past few days about Graham Wood's article in the Atlantic, which I think was called something about the move. Yeah, it was titled The Move to Eradicate Disagreement. And it actually litigates an intra-Atlantic disagreement with Adam Serwer, um, which is cool. I'm glad that the Atlantic is actually kind of doing a more public debate or back and forth sort of thing between their writers. But I think the Graham was just basically making a, a strong argument about how youngsters and it's similar to the, it's it's similar to the the old campus debate but i think he was making some comparison with well the us isn't as bad as iran but there are other kinds of repression that are not as bad as iran but are still worthy of concern so i think he was just trying to distinguish between different kinds of repression anyway um where's and then Osita response Okay, yeah, I mean, go ahead. I, did, I didn't look very closely. Uh, yeah. that, required, that probably required too much effort on my part. <laughs> but then Osita made a point, well, you know, if we're, if we're being open to disagreement and universities should I remember, um, yeah. emphasize disagreement, because Graham was basically saying that not only is disagreement something you should tolerate, disagreement is good. Like he was making a stronger argument than mere toleration. And then Osita and others were saying, well, should biology departments hire creationists? Would that be acceptable? And I responded and I said, yes, biology departments should hire creationists. And many of them already do. If by creationism, we simply mean the belief that the universe originates from specific acts of divine creation. So if you look at the broad definition of creationism, that's precisely what it is. It's that there is an, there is an origin story and it's a divine one. Mm -hmm. And that that is what puts creation in motion and maybe even evolution. So you can still believe in religion in a serious way and also accept that aspects of the evolutionary story are accurate. You just simply say that God is the one that propelled evolution, um, and he's the you know I don't want to I don't want to make this sound like it's intelligent design, but in some ways he's an intelligent designer, and um, so yeah sure evolution can can exist. It just means that it came from God originally, and I and I'm almost certain that biology departments throughout the country, many of them do have people who would say that the origin story is divine, that God is the ultimate cause, because there are Christians, as far as I know, in biology departments. And by definition, if you're an, a small O Orthodox Christian, you believe in a divine origin story. Obviously, sometimes when people say creationism, they mean something more specific, but then we're getting into, again, the semantic debates that I think are a little bit distracting. Semi-fascism versus fascism, fascism versus proto, quasi, neo-fascism, all these prefixes that we attach to things, whatever. Anyway, I just, it's an interesting, it's, an inter it, it's the fundamental debate. What are the limits of toleration? What are the ideas and beliefs that we are comfortable having in university departments? Where do we draw the line? Yeah.
And I mean, well, how did how did Osita respond? I didn't see if you guys went back and forth on that thread, or did he just sort of move on? <laughs> he may have, he may have responded, but I I don't think, but I can't see his response. Yeah, I think now. he yeah, did yeah. say something, but I can't recall. I think he was. Yeah, I actually forget. <laughs> so that's I it. Mean, that's all I got. Yeah. I don't know. I I I uh I guess I, I just don't have really an opinion on this is really what it comes down to. I guess it you know, I, I guess I'd sort sort of start um backwards from imagining, you know, what kind of education I would want my kid to have. That's really what it comes down to in all of this is how do you want your offspring to be raised and with what values and how much, how, how comfortable are you outsourcing any amount of that to some kind of institution or bureaucracy that decides in your stead what is or isn't okay, you know? So, I mean, I, I guess maybe my answer for tolerance and toleration there would be partly a community test of some sort. Nothing more or less than yeah. that. I don't think there's any there's any uh, deeper question there. I mean, I guess then the 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 sort of hard scientists sci scientists scientific uh, response would be something along the lines of, well, there's truth, and we can't be teaching myth in place of truth. That was the you know the the whole uh, um, sure the whole then, argument about then, evolution. And teaching evolution in school versus versus religious teaching, right? That's the whole Scopes Monkey Trial sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, but my issue, but and this is where I always fall back, and I know some people think it makes me a moral relativist of sorts. But when when we say yes, in theory, we shouldn't teach children myths. If by myths we mean something that is demonstrably false in a pejorative sense. And um, yeah, sure, that seems reasonable, but then who decides what's false? This is always the issue. You need a decider. And I don't like the idea of unaccountable parties deciding things on our behalf. I just don't, and I don't like the idea of a, I was supposed to say I don't like the idea of a state, but that's pushing it. Obviously, I'm not an anarchist. Yeah. But as I get older, the more I feel uncomfortable with the modern state, and I just keep on coming back to that. And it's interesting because I can sort of track my evolution on these issues. I didn't think about the state. I didn't have a pro, like a, I didn't have a distinctive problem with the state 10 years ago, but because of experiences, because of my own life and my own thinking and, you know, I try to think about things and if that leads to my thoughts changing, so be it. And I think on this, my thoughts have changed. It's interesting that the you- The state. That you, that you situated in the state though, because I mean, that's not, at least it's not how, how, you know, the argument used to play out before. It was sort of more all around uh, the idea of scientific progress and scientific knowledge. And that that was, though, the scientific process was one of testing uh, hypotheses and, in fact, you know, testing and rebutting and the debate getting to it. Nevertheless, it was a path to truth, something that we can unambiguously call truth and true. And therefore, mixing into that, you know, uh, things that don't belong, um, which is clearly what I think Osito is probably getting at, in the, the kind of, you know, again, Scopes Monkey Trial 
H.L. Mencken sort of way, um, that uh, that you're getting in the way of finding truth or scientific truth. I mean, I think we've lost that. Maybe that's a that's a a modern or postmodern thing, right? That that we just don't trust science to be truth, even though with all the caveats that scientists will give you, that it's all provisional truth, that it's all the scientific method, and it does actually give us usable and real things, well, facts about the world. Um, maybe it's the fact that 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 as a society we've 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 elevated this kind of provisional scientific truth into a deeper truth, a deeper moral truth. And that's what's irritating to some of us today. Yeah, I think so. And I would also say that the truth is rarely unambiguous. I mean, a hundred years ago during the Scopes trial, I think you could have I don't know, I wasn't alive then, but I presume that there were more clear-cut distinctions because a lot of this was still in process. There were still big scientific questions that were unresolved. I mean, if we go back further, you know, there was a time when people didn't think the earth was round. That seems to me a bigger divide than whether what you know, to what extent COVID vaccines are effective. So in some sense, the stakes are smaller. They're still important and they still, I mean, push us to very interesting philosophical debates, but the fundamental, the way we perceive the world has advanced considerably. So the things that we disagree on now are actually contestable in a way, at least in retrospect, that the Earth's shape isn't contestable. Like we know there's one answer to that. I, I mean, it's funny though, you said, you know, uh, things like COVID, you, you said the shape of the Earth matters somehow more than like COVID. When <laughs> really, that's not really true. Like <laughs> there, there's, there's this... One of the one of the the sort of uh, uh, weird rabbit holes that that I've fallen into on YouTube. Um, there's this weird Canadian guy, and he reviews camera gear. And I like cameras. I like taking photos. And uh, I forget his name's like Casey or something like that. The channel's called Camera Conspiracies, and it's mostly <laughs> tongue in cheek. It's mostly tongue in cheek. But you can see he's kind of like also semi-serious. He's like semi-vegan and dabbles in all sorts of like really weird sort of things. And every so often you can tell he's joking, but not really. He'll make some joke about the earth being flat. <laughs> and there is a thing. There's, I think there was an article. I forget where I saw it. It like passed through my 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 vision and I didn't bother reading it about, about flat earthers, like finding each other on the internet and like there being like a, a broad, you know, consensus community about the earth being flat. And I'm just thinking wow. to myself, like really at the end of the day, uh, you know, especially if you're not someone who travels very much and you don't rely on airplanes and stuff like that, what does it matter to you if the earth is flatter around? Like true. But, but even if you do use airplanes, I don't think using airplanes is like persuades us that the earth is round. Doesn't persuade you. Like, I'm what, just wait, saying like it matters to you. Like I, I think you need oh you need like 
the navigation and stuff to be true and function and you know that straight lines. Oh on yeah, the, yeah, because it the, actually affects like the plane staying things. in the air. I don't know if it, but I, a plane I, I could stay know. in the air even if the Earth was flat, right? No, no, navigation what, I think I mean, becomes difficult if if the Earth is flat. Like I think you there's the oh. way straight lines work and long distances on a oh interesting sphere okay is different from I, from the other thing. But I think apart from that, yeah, you're right. Flat Earth wouldn't actually impact a plane a plane flying through the air. <laughs> Anyway, well, yeah, the point that's is, where, though... That helps it, answer the question. That's where I would draw the line. I don't think we should have flat earthers in biology departments because so for democracy, that is it's slavery. false. For, for democracy, it's slavery is your line, and for science, it's flat earth. Random, yeah, though. Hey, both random. Both summation. random, though. It's always been my argument to you on, on, on even on democracy and slavery. It's a, it's a random line. Um, what, do you mean it's, what do you mean it's random? It's just a moral line that you that you've drawn and it's completely you mean arbitrary uh, uh yeah arbitrary is what i mean you don't mean yes. rent no you're right okay. i meant arbitrary i'm tired <laughs> arbitrary it's an arbitrary line yeah yeah I mean, that is in the same sort of way a... but yeah one's moral the other one's not but obviously moral intuitions change and as a result maybe we'll discover over time that animals do have souls as we come to recognize gradations of morality, even for these these automatons made of delicious meat, made so by God so we can eat them. Yeah, look, I mean, I think there has there are the uncharted, un, uncharted realms when it comes to the carving out of rights. So, you know, modern day liberals, they're always trying to discover new rights to sanctify. Mm -hmm. And I guess... We probably wouldn't have thought 30 years ago that the new frontier at some future point was going to be the rights of non-binary people or whatever, but that has happened. So not, I don't, not to say that, yeah, so maybe there's going to be a new, well, I guess there has been an animal rights movement. I guess it didn't gain too much steam because I don't yeah. really know any animal rights activists and I guess no but one really exist. cares except no. vegans. Yeah, I mean, but that, there's a lot of those people. Yeah, but it's still normal to eat meat. And I, uh, well, maybe not in some quarters, but I think it, the idea of the idea of not eating meat is so self-evidently absurd. Like people can decide it on their own in their private capacity. But if anyone was trying to legislate that to ban the eating of red meat because animals have been elevated and they are now considered to have souls and therefore the state has to intervene to protect those souls, that would just, I just don't think that's plausible. So when I think about plot, but then again, like who's to say what's plausible and, and what's not in like in the longer arc of history. Um, that said, I mean, if there's anything that I would fight for, if I would take to the streets and become an activist and a freedom fighter, it would probably be over any state effort to ban the consumption of steak and burgers. That but, is what would motivate me. But Shadi, talk to me a little bit about this. I'm, I'm Because I'm not a rights person, I'm actually quite a you know, yes, you don't believe in them. <laughs> I kind of don't, but like, I mean, it's interesting yeah. though that 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 I've always been fascinated when people who do believe in rights also admit to sort of you know. To me, the biggest strike against rights is the fact that uh, yeah, they're arbitrary uh, in the in the lar large scheme of things. That you need uh, 
I guess, a concept of moral progress, which is fine. But, but then as soon as you establish a concept of moral progress, I feel like then a, the a pretty hefty, like a, a chunk of weight to what rights people want kind of evaporates. I don't know, maybe you can walk me through this because I think you do take rights seriously and not certainly much more seriously than I do. And it's one of those things that's just like, it's always bugged me, right? Like if we can discover new rights and rights are an ever expanding pool of things, um, doesn't that devalue rights or at least like- Yeah, and that's something- why, but that's precisely why I don't like this constant discovery of new rights. The fact, the fact that- this arc of progress seems to be endless. I'm fine with progress at least as long as it ends somewhere. I don't like endless progress. Interesting. So maybe that's where I I come out on that. So I think that there was a progression in the last um, you know whatever 2000 years or you use whatever arbitrary like time period pre-modern versus modernity. I think we have made progress on certain key things on slavery for example. I, I like the fact that slavery now is is uncontested, that, you know, with very few exceptions, everyone thinks that slavery is not something that should be permissible in the, in the current, you know, moment it's of human existence. You just like the fact, though. Like, you like the fact that this is just a moral consensus, not, it's not weightier than that. It's just, you have a preference and you're pleased with a kind of consensus on this. I mean, okay, maybe that doesn't. That, maybe that's not disqualifying, well, not to you or just well, like to the weight of the thing. But even on slavery, well, it seems how, to me like one of mm-hmm. those things. You know what I mean? Like, either either it was always wrong, um, or a consensus emerged. Um, and if it's a consensus that emerged, it wasn't always wrong and not that weighty. It's just a consensus. There was a consensus for a well, flat earth after, you know, <laughs> for a while there. Okay, well, look, this is this is tricky territory, and you raise a really fascinating question. Like, if, if slavery is such an obvious moral wrong, then wouldn't that necessitate that it would be wrong in all times? Which is, uh, well, there's a, c- a couple issues here. I mean, one is that the modern form of, the somewhat modern form of slavery, i.e. the one that we had in our own history here in the United States, that form of slavery is not the kind of slavery that you had in in the time you know um, in the time of the the prophets, for example. So mm-hmm. you know, in the time of Abraham, Noah, David, pick pick your prophet. There was slavery, and in some sense, to some extent, slavery or some kinds of slavery were not banned by those prophets. Um, so, but, but, but yeah, but we're not talking about the racial kind of slavery that we had in the American innovation on slavery. So I think we just have to, there are different kinds of slavery that have been practiced throughout history. And we probably need to be specific about when we talk about the evil of slavery, are we talking about slavery as a whole or are we saying that some kinds of slavery if there's a racial component the way it was done in our country that is an evil that did not necessarily exist to the same degree you can say that it was still evil but you know obviously there can be gradations of of moral outrage or moral condemnation right but 
I mean, the fact of the matter is that earlier scriptures did not outright ban slavery. So that's, a, that's something that the, the monotheistic faiths have to contend with and make sense of. I mean, it's probably a little bit too complex to get into right now. Oh, no, sure. But I'm, but I'm, I'm not comfortable saying that I, I don't like retroactive. Like we can say that slavery is an absolute evil now without retroactively making that judgment for the entirety of human history. I just think that's a very modern way of looking at things. And I just think it's nonsensical uh, it, because then we'd be saying that everything that came before was bad and evil. And that then the implication is the people who lived in that time period, if they, if they um, condoned these things and didn't stop them from happening, then therefore they themselves are also culpable and evil. And that would yeah. mean that we were basically saying that the entire line of monotheistic prophets in the three in the three major faiths that those prophets were complicit in evil so you'd have to like there's it's there's a lot of moral complexity here is is basically it's yeah so i'm not comfortable with how some progressives would basically try to i read something interesting about this i can't remember where but something about how the modern liberal or the modern progressive has a has a very different relationship to time than pre-modern humans did that we as moderns we conceive of time almost in a in a linear sense and that was not how human beings perceived time in history i've heard that but it's have to, the the article tied this to liberalism specifically i mean that's just i think that's a is that um oh man there's a, a really famous 20th century historian who wrote that about the transformation of time. Um, really famous historian. Doesn't matter. I'll figure it out and mm. put it in the show notes. But uh, it was this article specifically about liberalism doing this to time? Do you remember? It was. I think it was more modernity, but liberalism was implicated from what I recall, that there's this kind of modern package and the modern liberal needs to think of time as something to categorize and to see almost in this mathematically linear way. And that's how we order our moral categories. And I guess that's how it fits into what I was saying earlier. To believe in progress, you have to think of time as being linear. Yeah. Because how else does, you know, you have to, progress and time are intertwined in that regard. God, I can't find it. I can't find the guy's name. This is killing me. He was actually... It's okay. Uh, It'll come to you. Uh, it won't come to me now. I'll just find it and stick it in the show notes. But uh, he, was a, he, was a, he was a close friend of Charles Davidson, our publisher at the American Interest. Um, oh. And uh, it's a... Oh, God, it's going to kill me. Okay. Going to gonna, gonna drift but off But it's not Berger. That. You're not talking about... No, you're not no, talking no, about no. Burger. No, not Peter Berger. Um, he died before Peter Berger, too. Uh, really just a... It's sort of like a really thick book too, but I don't own it, so clearly not that. Speaking important. of, just because you mentioned dying, I mean, I don't want to be flippant and mm. you know to take this in a very you know in a less serious direction, but I think it is worth noting that I, I was shocked to see this, and we'll sh we'll share the tweet in the show notes. But did you see this German news magazine, Der Spiegel, which is like one of the great national um, German yeah, yeah. magazines? They had. <laughs> 
in big letters a cover of Queen Elizabeth. And I can't even, I don't even want to say these words because it really pissed me off. Like it really bothered me yesterday. But in big letters, it said, die queen. Yeah. And I'm like, this is so, at least give it a couple days. It's so yeah. inappropriate that they would like this anger towards yeah. the British monarchy, which my, I don't know, it's probably based on some kind of historical grievance that I'm not even fully aware of. It just seemed like really excessive, especially for mild-mannered Germans to kind of, you know, be really, I don't know, it was weird. It was weird. But I, I made note of this on Twitter yes. and I can share the picture of this magazine. <laughs> yes. Yes, you should. It's very good. You know, yeah, it's, it's very yeah. impressive. It's very impressive how, how, uh, how, how coldly you delivered this, uh, this monologue here without, <laughs> without, even, without even breaking character even a little bit. It's very good. Oh boy, it's anyway, a skill. It's a skill. It is a skill. I did want to say one thing though about about rights because I, I wasn't done with that even though I got yeah I yeah got oh yeah yeah sorry the, I, I derailed us yeah by the um the historian Time thing. So I was reminded of I pulled it up now. Um, be interesting how you react to this. Um, our friend Sam Kimbrell again uh, prompted this. He sent it to me. Uh, it was a tweet. Sorab Amari, I guess, I don't know, he's been, seems to have been meeting Orban, and I don't know, he's probably at this NatCon thing that's going on right now. Um, yeah. So there's a, there's a quote tweet of Sorab, where he says, the rights of nations are circumscribed by geography, history, economics, chance, above all by power. The quote, freedom of a nation to do X is a matter of effective action, the power to coerce slash not be coerced. Ukraine's friends sadly led her to believe she could escape these laws. That's his quote. And then there's Sorab a, said all that? Sorab said all that in one tweet. That's um, that's an awfully long no, it fits. statement to fit into one tweet. That's it that's fits. just one tweet? Just one tweet. No. And then, okay. I mean I'll I'll, I'll show you. But but okay. so so uh it's got Jason Blakely, who I'm ignorant of, but he might be famous, I have no idea. He writes the following. If the, if the exercise of might determines that to which one has a right, this effectively abolishes rights and replaces it with the will of whichever nation has the most power. Personally, I agree. But then he says this, and this is what I want to prompt you on. In other words, Sorab has demonstrated he doesn't understand the basic prescriptive logic of rights. That is to say, hmm. Jason Blakely seems to have this approach to rights, whereas we claim something as a right and therefore improve behavior by establishing rights. Now, I don't think he gets out of the trick here that Sorab has set for him about power, because I would claim that any rights that we think exist in the international, international system are in fact backed by American, American, the preponderance of American power. We can enforce rights, so rights are contingent on American power. Jason doesn't get out of that problem, so I still think Sorab is right, but what do you think about that? That rights, I thought that was a really clever thing about this prescriptive logic of rights. We invent rights, and he doesn't seem to be shying away from that. And by the invention of rights, uh, we change the world and we change behavior. Not unlike what we were like discussing earlier about about this 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 question of, of dating and lying to the other person, right? <laughs> you oh, just... yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That's what do you a, think of that? Good, <laughs> what do you think about rights and not not about lying about dating, but about uh, about rights and that? Yeah, context? yeah. Look, I mean, 
Look, I'm a little bit concerned that Sorab would say that, although I am familiar with the, that argument that he's been making in the context of Ukraine. I mean, I, I don't know. Is Sorab really willing to say, and for those of you who are maybe new to the podcast, we had a really interesting two-parter with Sorab Ahmari, who um Catholic convert and um, major figure in the national conservatives movement. Um, so we'll, we'll include that in the show notes. But is he basically saying that might makes right? I mean, not to oversimplify it too much, but it seems like the ultimate takeaway is that power determines all and everything else is a product of power or the, or the lack thereof. I mean, I'm surprised that Sorab would make that argument because it doesn't seem to fit with my understanding of just war theory in the Christian tradition or even just the the kind of animating impulses of Christianity. It wouldn't surprise you to do, hear me making that argument, though. No, right. it wouldn't. Right. It doesn't. <laughs> it doesn't. Right. No, it's. It, I guess it is odd coming from Sora, but I mean, I don't know. The, 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 but the on the bigger, cause, on, on the... But the NatCons, for some reason, have have it out for Ukraine. I mean, you know, I, I, I don't have a problem with endorsing everything Sorab says. And in fact, that pointing out where he's wrong is that, at least for now, Ukraine has the backing of the West, and that's all that matters. And they are, in fact, yeah, there you go. triumphing is, on the battlefield. Is... And maybe their right to exist as a nation is being established through their own blood, uh, financed by the West and, you know, aided by Western weaponry. That's that's your your, your yeah, right to exist yeah. right there. But so I mean I I see no problem with Sorum's statement as that. I'm more interested in this idea about rights as the bigger being claim, prescriptive. But, yeah, let me go on the on rights. Yeah, rights is prescriptive. I do not share that view. Um, in part because I don't like the idea of inventing rights. Hmm. So even when you use that word, that makes me nervous because rights can't be invented. They are pre-existing. To be they fair to Jason Blakely, he didn't say invented. I, I read that into his tweet, so let's not oh, like, well, I pull think him you're probably right. I think that yeah. is, I, I do think modern day progressives basically see rights as something that is created, that people through acts of will, through, politi through politics, they create new rights and then impose them on recalcitrant populace through controlling the levers of cultural and state power. I mean, that's yeah. basically what's happening with... Um, with with trans rights to to one degree or another, um, but you're not uncomfortable so, with with American hegemony imposing broad rights on on the world, though. Like, I mean, from a international relations shoddy standpoint, you're quite comfortable about this. I mean, we've talked about this a lot about the importance of American power in establishing a set of norms and values internationally. Um, I don't see it as imposing rights, though. Not Is imposing, that the same thing? but it. it's, well, I mean, I think there's an echo here of what he's saying about the, you know, call it American hegemony. Uh, fine, call them norms instead of rights. But I think they amount to kind of the same thing, sort of habitual norms of of order, you know, right. American. But we can invent norms in a way that I don't think that we can invent rights because mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I sort of maybe share, share the perspective of the founders. I mean, when, when they when they conceived of rights as being self-evident and inalienable, that's a specific theolo I mean, that's a theological conception of rights that yeah. because rights come from God, they can't be taken away by man. Yeah. And they, they exist independent of 
the might of a particular government or dictator or whatever it might be. So I think that that is very much in line with my understanding of rights, that they, um, they're transcendent and they supersede any particular government or individual. And that's at the heart of why I find dictatorship so morally abhorrent, because it, dictators are infringing on God's sovereignty in some sense. They, mm. are, they are usurping God's role as the one who provides and guarantees these inalienable inalienable self-evident rights but norms mm. in the international mm. system to me are a different thing those those can be invented and they can be enforced by america without reference to god um you know and but that that's i mean the 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 rule the rule based the liberal rules based order i don't think that that's necessarily something that emanates from god mm. um so do you see what I, you see the yeah, difference yeah, no, there? I get it. Look, I, I'm very sympathetic to the founder's line that, you know, rights are basically, you know, if you want to claim them, you have to believe in, in the divine and just say these are basically from on high, you know. Um, but I think that that, yeah, but that, you still... that causes a problem for scripture. I mean, I'm not a believer, Shadi, so I, I, I can, I'm happy to bracket that. That's, it's very comfortable for me to bracket that. Say, no, that, but you, be, but you still, but you believe in, but you believe in some rights. Like this is sort of what Susanna, I think was bringing up in the previous episode. Mm. Like at some level, you, you, you're, I mean, you, you, I don't know, you want to avoid contending with the truth of your own position. And I think that sometimes, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like you don't you don't actually address the question in the end. You find ways to avoid dealing with it, which is that you are a moral being and you have moral commitments and you have them in spite of the fact that you don't believe in God. <sighs> we don't have to get into that right now, but no, I, I do think I mean, that this is I a perpetual tension. I don't think it is for me, honestly. I I uh, I think that that um, one can be perfectly contingent about this and still make claims for the kind of society that I that one would like to live in without making uh, a transcendent claim about the good. And I mean, I, I, maybe that's a dodge. Maybe that's a fine dodge. But I don't think that. Um, I, I guess I'm I'm just not that I, I don't find it that interesting to see individuals make claims for for universal like rights or goods. Yeah. I just, it's just it's not it's 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 not you know. So anyway, I, I I spent you know we're coming up on an hour. We can maybe pivot on this now for the bonus. But I spent the last two weeks again in the Balkans. Um, I think this is the bonus. Yeah, I mean, we're in it. It's 54 minutes. <laughs> we're pivoting to the bonus right now. This is the pivot. Oh, no, no. I think we have been in the state of the bonus yeah, for okay. a little while. All right. Well, we'll figure but out. We, we'll, I mean, who knows? We'll, figure we'll out find when out. Goes. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> when, when the gods intervene and, and put the arbitrary cut. Not random, arbitrary. Okay, you're in the Balkans. Um, That's what you started with that. No, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to sort of like frame this the right sort of way. Uh, because just as we're talking now is like rattling around my head a little bit. Um, I, I guess I don't 
I still don't share uh, your kind of moral abhorrence of uh, authoritarianism, but I'll I'll tell you why. I've said this before, and you've 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 really you've really like bridled at me. Um, but oh boy! But I'll, I'll, I'll let me let me let me let me say it again, and and I'm not sure I, I've. There was anything in particular this time around that made me think this, but just in this conversation, reflecting back in the last two weeks of travel has made me think of it. I, I, I do think that, that, that authoritarianism does emerge out of a society that's ripe and ready for it, that is accepting of it. Um, so what I, I guess the part that I find least pers- per- persuasive is this idea that authoritarians are repressing um, the natural or are actively all that busy in repressing, uh, you know, uh, tendencies of progressivism in society. Now, obviously, they spend a fair bit of their time doing just that, so I don't want to make some sort of categorical claim that it's not the case. But I think that the longevity of authoritarian leaders has a lot to do with the fact that certain societies are in a place where they are ripe for it. And this is not a racial comment. This is not a, uh, a reductivist sort of thing. And again, I'm telling you this from having spent a, you know, two weeks now and several weeks in May and in the Balkans, just sort of traveling around. Um, but I think it's true. And I think in the Balkans, you can sort of see it um, where you have glimmers of change, um, and you have different leaders that come up that are different. Um, and then the kind of challenges that they face. Um, you know, I, I uh, uh, Rachel and I actually, Rachel Russo and I met with uh, Albin Kurti, the prime minister of, of Kosovo on this last trip. And he's a reformer. Um, he is a, um, like an activist who spent years in jail in, in late, late Yugoslavia and in Serbia. Um, and, you know, like came to power in, in I don't know, uh, difficult, a difficult process of him coming to power. And he has his own sort of tendencies of, of uh, ideas about, you know, the Albanian nation and Kosovo that he has rejected, but not fully. Um, but he's an anti-corruption guy and uh, he's an intellectual. It's really interesting talking to him. Hmm. And it's interesting... Because Kosovo, you know, largely uh, has been a plural society and has had much more real parties, even though they have a lot of corruption. It was really interesting talking to him. We had a good hour with him where he talked uh, really about ideas a lot. And it just got me thinking the extent to which someone like him couldn't exist in other societies in the region, uh, largely because of the societies in the region not being able to sustain a leader like that, I guess, is what it comes down to. And I'm not saying he's going to be successful in Kosovo because Kosovo has a lot of problems itself. I'm not saying he's some sort of hero uh, that, you know, there's nothing to uh, question about about him and his motives and what he's doing and how he's doing politics right now. And I'm not saying that the other parts of the Balkans are unable to do this. Um, actually, the, uh, the Prime Minister Montenegro... This young Albanian guy um, is coming to D.C. this weekend. We're doing stuff with him with at, at, uh, at the Atlantic Council. Um, 
Montenegro's a surprising thing insofar as it's sort of like it's gotten uh, sort of, I don't know, like shaken up and there is signs of democracy and young leaders and people doing change and stuff like that. I guess what I'm getting at though is, is, is I, after this trip, I have a, I, maybe I have more tolerance for, for, for change to a certain extent. And like my sort of earlier, uh, conceptions of, um, I don't know how to put it, um, about authoritarianism and, you know, moves away from authoritarianism, uh, have maybe modulated a little bit, but I still think there's, there's something not quite right about the progressive view about authoritarianism and democracy. I think it's too pat, too simple. And you, and do you think that I have the progressive view on this? Sometimes. Sometimes I feel like we disagree on this, on those on those sort of uh yeah i guess grounds. i just wouldn't call it progressive because i think i diverge from progressives when it comes to where liberalism fits into all mm. of this because it you know because i i don't think that's part of the trajectory necessarily yeah and when i talk uh, when i talk about dictatorship being contrary to the human desire for agency i'm I'm not talking about like the full panoply of like liberal rights. I don't mm. think that people are chomping at the bit to legalize gay marriage or sure. to have everyone just like commit abortions or whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, not to say that's what progressivism is about, but. Um, no, but, you know, oh, I no, guess no, but, but, but. Yeah, go on. No, you know, look, yeah, so, here's the part. The part that's interesting to me is this is like, I feel like. Um, the successful authoritarian or semi-authoritarian leader is, in fact, actually quite responsive to, while shaping the needs and desires of the people he rules over. Um, I think that's the game. And I think that a lot of this democracy versus autocracy thing misses that. That obviously when you're in power, you have a lot of capacity to shape the discourse and to shape expectations and to shape the horizons of what's possible in society. And I think authoritarians certainly shrink that and they, they narrow it. Um, but nevertheless, you know, they are reflecting tendencies and amplifying tendencies within a society. So, you know what I mean? It's, it's what I, I guess what I find really too simple is this idea that authoritarians repress the natural democratic instincts of a society. While I can, you know, I think there's an element of truth to that in the sense that I'd say by constricting what's possible, authoritarians limit the possibility of democracy emerging in a society and maybe retard a society's path towards a more democratic way of functioning. Um, I don't like this idea that they are somehow inauthentic to a society, that they are a foreign pollutant to a oh, well, natural so, kind of... Do you know what I mean? And maybe I'm reading too much into the democratist sort of, or even your some of your sort of arguments about authoritarianism sometimes, maybe because we're just doing it on a polemical level and we haven't engaged on a on a more granular thing. I guess I guess I, I'm impressed from this trip about about the gradations of it all and how societies reflect these gradations in a bunch of imperfect 
more promising and less promising leaders among all of them. Um, I find that just sort of interesting and, and, and complex in a way that I think it's impossible to give full voice to rhetorically, but I think we ought to at least, among us who th talk about these things, at least acknowledge these almost weird dialectical things between society and leader, you know? Does that make sense? It does. It does. So I w I'm with you. I think your your description of my position is right up until the point where you say foreign pollutant. I don't think that authoritarian regimes are somehow inauthentic or foreign or I, I, I don't think that's language that I would, that I have used or would be comfortable using yeah. in the sense that, you know, a like when I think about Sisi in Egypt, do I think of Sisi as a foreign imposition on the Egyptian people? That's not really how I see it. Um, I think that he represents something real in Egyptian political culture. Mm. And he reflects something very real. But uh, I think that there's a causation issue here. And I think you sort of get at this in a couple of the things that you said. So a dictator can can amplify certain things that are maybe um, nascent or not fully expressed. So I think authoritarians speak to the dark side that we all have, that we want to crush our opponents. I think that is part of the human the human experience. It's part, every one of us sometimes wants to crush their opponents. Thankfully, we live in a democracy where it's difficult to do that. Um, although, obviously, many Americans do want to crush their opponents because it is a natural urge. And living in a democracy and being a product of the American political experience doesn't prevent people from wanting in this vis on this visceral level to crush their opponents. But, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, so authoritarianism speaks to something natural. So does that make it authentic? Maybe not, but it doesn't make it inauthentic either. So I wouldn't, I'm not someone who would say that every authoritarian regime is fundamentally inauthentic. But I do think that authoritarian regimes distort, distort the, the, the preferences and proclivities of their own people because they encourage a darker side without giving voice or allowing expression for the side that is more pluralistic or tolerant or more respective of individual agency. So I think that that's where you have like an imbalance that builds up over time. So Egypt has been authoritarian for the near entirety of the last 70 years with the exception of maybe two years. So that probably has changed the way Egyptians are. Something fundamentally has shifted in the Egyptian psyche, not because Egyptians are bad or anything inherent to them, but it's simply that these things accumulate over time. Some people make the same argument about Russians. Russians have become, I don't know, our friend Karina, I think made a version of this argument in one of our early episodes two years ago. I can't give... I can't do it proper justice. You could probably do justice to it. But that, I mean, I think she was basically saying that there is something wrong with Russians. The question is what led them to become this way? 
are they the ones who drove like so are are Russians the ones who caused Putin or did I mean Putin wasn't a foregone conclusion there's an alternative history where in the last 3 decades Russia did not become a full on autocracy things could have happened differently at particular moments in time so i'm always focused on contingency tunisia yeah. so to okay so um 6 years ago tunisians seemed like they were naturally inclined towards democracy and they had one of the only democracies in the middle east a few years later they now have an effectively an authoritarian regime does that mean that all of a sudden Tunisians are now fundamentally different than they were four years ago? How does that work? I mean, yeah, you can't. A culture doesn't change in four years. So clearly, there's something else going on besides the disposition of a particular people. Yeah, um, a couple of things. Uh, one thing that comes to mind is that, like, you know, uh, do we do we actually have access to what the quote-unquote people actually think at any one point? Um, or is it always mediated through, you know, the sort of circumstances that uh, lead to uh, a certain set of outcomes that may include authoritarianism or may include democracy, and that, that, that the events themselves end up shaping the reactions of people so um, it's i think the, the question of what the people really want at any point is actually quite fraught we even see it in polling right polling is a unsanctified mode of democratic voting in a sense right we just don't go through the ritual of calling one poll of all polls is actually meaning something but all polls are snapshots of the you know yeah. the semi-schizophrenic view of any people at one point and depends a lot depends on how you ask the question right um, that's one point. The other point about, about, I guess that I have a deep skepticism of a lot of people. Oh, yeah, Demir, uh, you froze. The other point about... I'm still here. Can you hear me? You started saying the other point, then it froze, and I didn't hear a single yeah, thing yeah, yeah. after that. No, okay, I didn't say much more. I, it's uh, anyway, since it's recording locally, it'll be fine. There won't be a freeze for the audience. You'll just we'll just have this little bit of you saying that I froze, but they won't see it. Um, the uh, but I don't know now? what you said though. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I paused. Yeah, yeah. I paused for a long time. I said, um, "Oh, it was it... a pregnant pause." No, look the other the other the other part, Shadi, that. Uh, that strikes me about this is that where I think that democracy people, um, what they get wrong in these ideas about uh, what people actually want, um, you can't get a, a, a better snapshot of it than I thought some of the, the surprise uh, that given the latest shellacking that Russians are getting uh, at the hands of Ukrainians, um, that the public discourse in Russia has turned to we must annihilate Ukraine rather than some sort of recognition that they are being led down the wrong path by an unjust leader. I think a lot of a lot of democratists are like saying, 
oh, you know, uh, the poor Russians, they don't really, that the, the Putin is just like imposing this nasty war on them. It so misses the dynamic of governed and governance and governing, yeah. even in authoritarian societies, that obviously now that they're losing, there's actually, again, who knows? There's no accurate polling of Russia. Most Russians probably don't have an opinion on it. They just want their, you know, their basic, uh, their basics taken care of. Um, but those that do know are not experiencing the shellacking and the loss of tens of thousands of their uh, countrymen's lives at the hands of the West as a moment to reflect on the errors of their leader. But in fact, it's they're seeing it as a moment to be like, we can't let this stand. And there's something so weird about a lot of liberals looking at this and being like, oh my God, you know, the Russians are evil. But I mean, I don't think they're, you know, it's just, it's it's to be expected. It's just like the most obvious thing. When you get in a war like this, this is going to make yeah. things worse. It's not going to make I was people gonna, I was come say, to Christ look, on this, you know? It's just ridiculous. I was going to say, like, what you described, like, when you said that, oh, like, thousands of their countrymen have died, that might lead, that might potentially lead to reflection. Everything I know about human nature suggests the opposite. Exactly. If you're, if you're fighting in a war and thousands of your countrymen die— you don't want them to die in vain. Right. You're going to like you're going to you're going to be on the right side i.e. your own side regardless of the more you know the moral context and all of that. But you remember I wrote a piece on this about how on ordinary Russians where I yeah. I think that I very much contested the democ the um the liberal democratist view. I said yes. Russians do have like Russians have bad views on this. They support Putin by and large. But I guess where I would differ is I would say that they in in the context that they that they find themselves in, they have made understandable choices. But it's the authoritarian context that has pushed them in a particular so it's not it's not so much Putin. It's that if you live like if you know you're focused on survival, um, you don't have the luxury. I mean, to to think morally requires it requires certain conditions, and that's why, in contexts of duress, people aren't doing careful moral reflection. That's what I worry about in the American context. We are under duress increasingly as a country, and I think that distorts people's moral intuitions they start to think about sides and they prioritize that over, people say that they prioritize a truth, but when, what they mean by truth is really their own side. Yeah. So that's why, you know, the, the science isn't actually about the science. The science is about your side against the other side. It's about crushing the Trump supporters in the name of science. Hmm. Anyway, maybe that's a little bit. I, no, I don't know. No, no, no. Yeah. It's a good way to tie it up together. You know, I mean, I, 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 I hesitate, but I think we've got like another five or ten minutes if you if you can indulge me. I, I, I sort of want to introduce that 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 other essay I shared with you from the plane about the Queen. Um, oh yeah, that was really good. Um, you know, I, I read it once on the plane. Um, and then sent it to you immediately. So I haven't, I haven't like studied it. I didn't go back to read it a second time before this recording. So, you know, it'll be a little off the cuff what I'm 
what I'm about to say. Um, I guess I never really appreciated uh, the extent to which I've I, I, I've known it that monarchy represents this idea of you know uh, the state as opposed to the government that you know that's a a, a common modern monarchic defense that you know you want to have some symbolic representation of the state and the continuity of the state uh that is separate from governing which is the realm of democracy um but i I guess i never really appreciated it in in the modern british context the extent to which it's emotionally true i i always sort of took it to be uh axiomatically emotionally true but i never really appreciated the depth of it um but it it gets Maybe something about it gets to a um, a truth for me when thinking about what keeps a polity together. Uh, what keeps us from what you're describing right now, like, you know, just crushing the enemy, um, is a commitment to something, to some sort of commonality. And it's interesting that in the British context, so much of it is embodied or at least given some of the eulogies in the last few days, uh, in, in this institution of, um, of the monarchy, that like this creates a, a, a common sort of good, basically, that the society can aspire to. The essay is interesting because it, it ends up in a place, and this is, would be a prompt to you, um, saying that, that this sense of state unity is actually inimical to democracy, that in fact... The author of this piece, we'll, we'll link it in the show notes, he seems to be coming to the point of saying that um, that the consensus around monarchy suppresses democratic instincts for disagreement, for progress. I mean, I think I, I took the guy to be a bit of a progressive writer at the end, um, saying that, in fact, you need this kind of disagreement about, you need a, a kind of raucous disagreement that the institution of monarchy puts a damp rag on. I, I I feel like reading that and looking at what we've got in the United States, I feel like we're going in the opposite direction. That was what my last Monday note was about, was this idea that basically we're, we're losing the common and all we're doing is just like ripping each other's throats out um, and that it feels oddly familiar in Balkan to me <laughs> that that's happening. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. What did you What did you make of that monarchy essay? I thought that was an interesting thing. I didn't fully buy it because I think he's underselling the importance of monarchy and that unity. But I, I thought that was a really provocative thing about, you know, really agonism, though he doesn't call it that by his name, and vigorous disagreement in democracy um, that abrades against against that that kind of unity, maybe artificial unity that that the monarchy represented. Yeah, I thought it was a really good essay and it may even be worth having an episode on monarchy as a system of government. Mm. I just a thought for the future, maybe yeah. not even like immediately, but I think it's going to I don't know, I've just been thinking more about monarchy in this mm. context and and it's I'm not used to thinking about monarchy in the context of western democracy. I have thought quite a bit about it in the context of the Middle East. You know, I've lived under, I guess two Arab monarchies. And I think it's a fascinating structure. And Jordan really stands out to me in this regard, but not to digress. Um, I think that 
part of the issue in the essay, and I'll just say it in broad terms so any so you don't have to necessarily read the essay to understand, but I think that the author has this built-in presumption that if you give the people a say, if you give the people the the say, that that's going to automatically lead to progress. The, the opposite can happen. I think you're almost alluding to that. Mm. Without a referee, without an umpire, without some transcendent symbol of national unity, you can have things moving in the opposite direction. And I think that with a lot of leftist anti-monarchical writers, they assume that if you remove these aristocratic barriers, that the natural will of the people will emerge and this will will be inherently progressive. I think that's nonsensical. Yeah. That would be my major criticism. But I, I do I do like I think there's a lot to reflect on in the British case. And I, I don't know I haven't thought as much about the British example because I never really took the monarchy seriously. When we think about monarchies in, in Europe, we tend to think of, oh, these are just figureheads, symbolic. And I think that that might be right for other monarchies like um like Norway or Sweden where there isn't, the crown doesn't matter as much. They've really downgraded the royals and the royal family where in a way that England hasn't. That, that I, I don't know, I, that's a sense that I get from British friends. They this A lot of them take this pretty seriously. It is meaningful. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I fully grasp that. Maybe I still don't fully understand it. And maybe, I don't know, maybe at some point it would be interesting to have a British monarchist, well, I guess because most Brits are monarchists, as we have now found out, like, how do they actually, like, what does it mean to them? Ben Judah I mean, wrote a really good only... piece, a really good oh, piece yeah? in Unheard. Oh, I haven't... Yeah, check it out. I okay. mean, we'll put it in show notes as yeah. well. Um, it's it's in a different register than what we're just discussing right now. We'll put both of them in there, but Ben might be a good person to have on to just sort of kick some of this around. Interesting thought. Because he, he, was, he yeah. was on Twitter fighting the good fight against the leftists. I don't know if you saw this. This was another sort of no. at a distance for me, great pleasure on Twitter, just like watching Ben Judah himself, uh, I think a, a, a legitimate card-carrying leftist going to war with a lot of American nice. lefties over over monarchy and being like, you guys don't understand the first thing what you're talking about. But I agree. I, yeah, I, I, I don't think I, yeah. I appreciated the depth of it either. Um, and it would be really good to just get someone to sort of you know, unpack a lot of this stuff and not really a monarchist, but like, you know, uh, a Brit who can really sort of get at it. Maybe, maybe Judah, maybe, maybe Josh Glancy, another, another person we haven't mm. had on the show yet. Be a, yeah. a good person to chat with us about. Yeah. And, uh, but like just seeing what's going on in America right now, mm. I think I, I think I am probably more sympathetic to the idea of having an above the fray monarch who is a symbol of national unity but who doesn't actually have any power or at least any legislative power but in the essay the, the this this author makes the point that there is no such thing as above politics yeah and but that that's uh that's maybe in the end well obviously in the end nothing is above politics everything is political if you take it to the next level um, but I think it's fair to say that the British monarchy is nonpartisan. 
which is different than saying non-political, but that's still pretty good. Yeah. To have a non-partisan state representative that both sides respect more or less equally, I'd take that. Yeah, yeah. But there's a lot more that we can unpack, but maybe... Um, yeah, let's save that for another episode. Uh, yeah, the, the, the rest of the onion can be unpeeled as we weep in the future for our as dear we listeners. Weep. <laughs> as we weep. For our dear, for not, I was going to say our dear queen that doesn't, no, but like the, the dear queen. Well, the, I guess she's part of our shared universal heritage in some sense. Like a lot of Americans feel close to her. The queen. I guess. As the Germans might say, the queen. No, no, they they said die queen. <laughs> yes. Die yes. queen. Die. That's cool. Okay. Guy, okay. You, I, I'm so, I'm so perturbed by this. Yeah. Okay. Don't, anyway, let's, let's, let's keep it there before I get angry and protective <laughs> yeah, over the queen right. more than is necessary. I think that's a good time. Okay, Demir. All right, Shadi. <laughs> okay. All right, bye. Talk soon. Bye. Bye.